for, you know, I always say things like that happen and then you end up, you know, like those, those moments in your life where you think, I can't believe this is happening to me is oftentimes life's way of nudging you and just letting you know you're off course. Welcome to View from the Top, the podcast. That was Sarah Blakely, the CEO of Spanx. Blakely came to campus as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where MBA students sit down to interview top leaders from around the world. In this episode, Blakely talks about starting her own company with just $5,000. She had no outside investing and no advertising. Today, Spanx is a $1.1 billion venture. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. Sarah, thanks for being here. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Clearly, we're excited to have you. I'm particularly excited to have you here. Um, I never thought I'd be saying this to a view from the top speaker, but if it weren't for you, I don't think I would have been able to zip up these pants today. (laughs) So I'm so honored. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So really, thank you. (laughs) You famously started Spanx with $5,000 in your bank account. What was the hardest part about getting Spanx off the ground? Um, The hardest part about getting Spanx off the ground was definitely in the very beginning. When you you first have an idea as an inventor and you've thought of something that doesn't exist and you want to bring it into the world, um, there were two things that were happening. One was my own self-doubt was a really hard part of the journey. And, um, and then the beginning of all the manufacturers that I was having to cold call and talk to to try to get my product made were all men. And it was much harder to explain and to try to get them to understand the concept of what the product was. So I heard the word no for two straight years trying to get it made, which then increases the self-doubt that can happen. And one of the interesting things about being an inventor is you don't go to school for it. There isn't an inventor class. You can't major in inventing. And so it's really a belief system in yourself and the willingness to look stupid or to have people laugh at you or to fail at something that you believe in. You're your own gut check on that. And so it takes a lot of confidence. So that was... That was the hardest part of my journey. There was a lot of starting and stopping and like, am I crazy? And everyone's saying no. And, but I, you know, I kept picking myself back up to pursue it. What was it? Was it confidence that kept you going in the early days? What was it that kept you coming back? Well, my life was pretty much sucked. So (laughs) that always helps. Um, I was selling fax machines door to door for seven years. And um, as mentioned, you know, this wasn't mentioned, but I had wanted to be a lawyer. My father was a trial attorney. And I used to actually ask to get out of school growing up to watch him in closing arguments. And I debated all through high school. I debated in college. And um, I'm basically a really bad test taker. And so I bombed the LSAT. And I bombed it not once, but twice. And um, so it set my life on, on a different course for, you know, I always say things like that happen and then you end up, you know, like those, those moments in your life where you think, I can't believe this is happening to me is oftentimes life's way of nudging you and just letting you know you're off course. Well, thank goodness you persisted, because today we have Spanx. And today Spanx has moved far beyond the world of undergarments. At different points in the company's history, you've both taken on and walked away from the role of CEO. What has driven those shifts? Well, in the early days, I mean, as an entrepreneur, you're every department. 
So uh, I was the before and after butt model, literally. <laughs> I took a picture of my own butt, took it to Kinko's, got it laminated with and without Spanx on, stood in the stores, and I'm like, hey, look what this can do for you. Um, I, was, I was like the packer and shipper. I was the head of sales. I was everything. And you learn very quickly what you're good at and what you're not good at and what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy. And there's usually a correlation between the two. And so I often say as soon as you can afford to, hire your weaknesses. And a few years into Spanx, um, it was abundantly clear that the lane that I needed to stay in was inventing, selling, promoting. Spanx actually has never advertised. Um, Spanx is 18 years old, and the first time we've ever even sampled an ad was to, uh, in 16. And so I was sort of the, the advertisement, and, and me being out in the field talking about the product and sharing the story of the why, why we're making this, why it's better, was a big part of the formula. And I needed someone to be in the company day-to-day -day running the daily operations. So I hired a, a CEO. She was a co-CEO with me for a while. And then she became the full-time CEO. And she was that for 12 years. And then um, I stepped back in as CEO about two years ago. It's been two years. And a lot of that has to do with timing. I have four children under the age of eight. And so I was growing and building my family. And it just organically feels like the right time for me to do that inside of the company. And so I still am able to stay in my lane. It's just slightly structured differently where um, I have a very strong management team around me running the day-to-day -day operations. You still hold 100% ownership over Spanx, and you made a conscious decision to never take money from outside investors. Why? I never needed to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I never needed to. So um, I don't know if it was a super conscious decision along the way, more than just I, I didn't really have the need. I, um, Spanx was profitable from the first month that I was in business. And I, um, I'm in, of the belief system for me in my journey to start small, think big, and scale fast. And a lot of people want to start big and think big and oftentimes get ahead of themselves. And, and that can end wildly successfully, but it can also cause a lot of um, problems. And you dilute yourself down a lot, and you know, then you have a lot of other people you're answering to. So that just was the journey that I took. You know, I mean, I started it with five grand. I've never had any outside funding. And whatever money I made from selling uh, Spanx, I just put back into the business. I love that. Start small, <laughs> think big. Uh, do you want to run Spanx forever? Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm so, I operate off gut and intuition, and I think when the time is right, I'll know it. If, if, you know, when I first started Spanx, I've never taken a business class. I've never worked in fashion or retail when I started Spanx. And about six months after I started it, all these people kept coming up to me at business events or cocktail parties or wherever and said, Sarah, what's your exit strategy? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I didn't even know what that meant. And so eventually I started telling people, my exit strategy is I want to exit a room and look good. <laughs> That's my exit strategy. So. <laughs> the best exit strategy I've heard. Exactly. <laughs> you mentioned that you're an inventor first. Many aspiring entrepreneurs, even in this room, struggle to find their initial idea. How do you constantly find ways to invent new products? And where does your inspiration come from? Um, you know, I, um, I mean, I think of a lot of ideas at traffic lights. 
I think of them all the time in different places, and I think it's part of just being hyper-observant. I, um, I like to find white space. I pay attention to what are things that haven't evolved and why. You know, like there's certain things in our society that updates itself and changes and, and you know, constantly, and then there's certain things that it's not. And so I'll ask myself questions all day, every day. It's just the way my brain works. Like I could even be looking at a table and be like, why is the table like that? When was the table first created? Is that the actual best design for a table? Or could there be something different? And you know, Spanx went into men's, and that was randomly how that happened, was because I got curious that the man's undershirt was created in 1918, and no one had paid any attention to it since. It was literally the same thing. And so I just you know, talked to my brother and my husband about it, and their undershirts, the, the necks stretched out, or they were boxy and bulky under clothes. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to add a little bit of lycra to the cotton undershirt for men, and so the neck won't stretch out. And I'm going to taper it in at the waist. So uh, ideas come to me like that. Like our latest invention is arm tights. And ladies, <laughs> you want to stand? Anyone wearing an arm tight? They just showed me these. I was very excited. Stand up. OK, here we go. Um, so like Jennifer and Naomi have them. And I feel like there was somebody. Oh, yeah. You, ha yeah, you have them. She's wearing them. Hello. 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 I'm Hello. hiding them under well, the blazer. Well, you put that cute jacket I'm, on over. Yeah, that's it's, why. It's OK. True. Anyway, so the invention, the idea for arm tights is literally just, I mean, there's so much that comes from being a frustrated consumer. So I'm a woman. I'm looking at my closet. Most of my favorite things are sleeveless, like a sleeveless shirt, a sleeveless dress. And I'm like, you know what? I want to wear that differently. And I also want to wear it year round. So I just want something that goes underneath on my arms, super simple in lots of different colors. I don't want to always have to put a cardigan or a jacket or something over it come fall or winter or when you're transitioning in spring or even inside of office buildings. I'm cold a lot. And I don't want the integrity of my shirt or my dress to be covered up. So that's how arm tights. It's a little crop top made on a hosiery tights machine, which had never been done before. And you put it on over your head. It stops just below your bra. And the reason that is for that is less bulk under your clothes. It's super breathable, easy to wear. And then it just literally, like with one $30 item, your whole closet exponentially grows with looks and how you want to layer it and wear it. I love it. But yeah, ideas clearly, are you know, clearly. I love it. I have my my, my assistant, who's my right hand, Lisa. She's been uh, my right hand for 16 years. Can attest to this. But I have 99 pages. I don't know why it's 99, but it's, she told me the other day it's 99 pages, single space typed of ideas. <laughs> I need one more idea. So um, I e I think of ideas constantly on airplanes and car, you know, talking to somebody, and I email it to myself, and then I just keep them and log them. Oh. <laughs> Take note. <laughs> You've said that you deliberately approach Spanx with a degree of feminism you had rarely seen in business. Can you elaborate on that for us? Well, I don't know about I just I, I approached it with a very feminine leadership style. And so I think that there's, um, there's, you know, traditional business has been very masculine, and it's been a very masculine model. And so I approach it. I mean, and when I say that, I when I first started Spanx, I was maybe three months in, and I was at a cocktail party, and I these three guys came up to me, and they said, Sarah, so we heard you invented something. And I said, yes, I did. And they said, great. And one guy, you know, pat me on the shoulder, and he said, I hope you're ready to go to war. And he said, business is war. And I just remember looking at him and thinking, why? 
And I went home that night and, and sat in my apartment and I sat on the floor and I was thinking about all that was happening and, you know, um, this risk I was taking and potentially leaving my job and the secure income and, and just thinking, I don't want to go to war. And this voice inside of my head just said, do it different. Like, take a totally different approach. And so I have approached Spanx with very feminine principles. And there's, there's the feminine and the masculine in all of us, and it's all super important. But, you know, using vulnerability, um, really operating off of intuition. If the data is trumping my intuition, I go with my intuition almost every time. So, you know, that's not typical in, in a corporate environment. So those kinds of things that I've done. Like being vulnerable with the business, I, um, I felt as a consumer, I, I just felt like companies aren't really talking to me the way that I want them to talk to me. I know I'm not listening to them, I don't believe them, I don't necessarily trust them. And so when I started Spanx, I, um, instead of talking you know, at my customer, I wanted to talk to them. And I made myself vulnerable. So I, like, I joked and said I used my own butt in the before and after <laughs> picture, but I had felt like companies were operating in this, like, we need to be perfect and you need to see us as the authority and you need me and that's how I'm going to sell you product. And I was like, hey, like, I'm one of you. Like, here's, here's what's happening. Here's what it does for me. This is why it works. And it was just a very different approach and I felt like consumers became really connected and really loyal and probably part of the reason why Spanx as a brand didn't need to advertise for six, I mean, for, we haven't spent any money on advertising in 16 years because of I, a lot of it's word of mouth from women sharing with other women. Yeah, if that flashing example in the green room we had <laughs> earlier was any example of what that virality looks like for you, then I can only imagine. Can you tell us about a meaningful experience? I tried to get John to flash, but he wasn't <laughs> wearing any Spanx. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from that. <laughs> Can you tell us about a meaningful experience you've had mentoring young women since founding Spanx? Um, I mean, sure. I, um, a, a, a lot of different women come to mind. Um, you know, I... I look for women that I can support um, what they're doing in education and, and in their businesses and entrepreneurship. But there's a group of 10 women that I started supporting and mentoring in Atlanta. I wanted to kind of do something really close to home who are all doing social impact type businesses for the community of Atlanta. And that's been really rewarding and wonderful to watch. And all of them now have crossed the million dollar mark. And um, I do a lot of work with Grameen America um, helping female entrepreneurs living below the poverty line here in the United States. One woman um, comes to mind, Brittany Underwood, who started Ecola Jewelry. And um, I mentored her a little bit as well, um, in addition to um, you know, helping to support her, and mentioned that she should try to sell her product at Neiman Marcus. And as a result, you know, Ecola Jewelry is at all the Neimans, and she's doing a fabulous job giving women, particularly in Dallas, homeless women, employment. And it start, her, her company started in Uganda. But, you know, the reality is people have been asking me for 18 years, multiple times a day for 10 minutes of my time to mentor them or to help them. And, um, and so I'm 
working on a digital format for that, and it's in beta right now. And it's just a way to answer, how did I do this? And the real answer of how I did this is Spank started way before I cut the feet out of my pantyhose. That's the soundbite in the press that everybody's talked about for almost 20 years. But it actually started fundamentally on um, when I was 16. I worked on mindset for myself, and I'm such a believer in mindset is almost everything. And it just happened to be a, a set of circumstances. I was riding my bike with one of my best friends at 16, and she was run over by a car and killed in front of me. And then a few months later, my dad left home, and my parents separated and ultimately got divorced. And when my dad moved out, he came into my bedroom, and he handed me a cassette tape series called How to Be a No Limit Person by Wayne Dyer. And he said, sweetie, I wish I discovered this when I was your age instead of the age of 40. And then he moved out. And so I started listening to this How to Be a No Limit Person, which was talking about visualization, law of attraction, um, not caring about what other people think about you, the fear, you know, not being consumed by the fear of failure. And it just, the clouds parted for me, and I thought, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time being taught what to think, but no one's really teaching me how to think. And at 16, that was so incredibly important. So in this digital platform, it's kind of passing on a lot of these insights that deal with mindset that I think is the real reason that Spanx exists. So you had this incredible mindset at the age of 16, and you're kind of almost paying it forward by empowering women around you. What role do you hope the Sarah Blakely Foundation will play in the empowerment of women? Well, I mean, my ultimate goal is that the male and female energy on the planet becomes balanced. So um, I feel like... Um, was that something? That was a snap. Oh, was that a snap? Okay. Um, all right. Um, well, good. That one person who agrees with me. Yes. Where are you? Um, yeah, so uh, anyway, the male and female energy on the planet more balanced. And the reason why I say energy, I mentioned earlier, is that we all have the male and the female energy inside of us. And I feel like the feminine has been pretty squashed for a long time on our planet. And it's not serving the greater whole. So what can I do in my short lifetime to elevate the feminine? And, um, and that's what the foundation is focused on in how, how can I help be elevating and supporting that And I, I take my opportunity as a woman in this country so seriously. And um, I think part of the reason that I do is because I got to watch my mom and my grandmothers and their lack of options. And um, that was really hard. And so, you know, we've been on the planet for thousands of years or millions of years, depending on who you ask and what you think. But the bottom line is my mom is only 22 years older than me. And my mom had about three or four options only afforded to her um, because she was a woman. So in the grand scheme of life and how long we've been on earth, I'm like, I made it by 22 years? Like, what? You're kidding me. So I feel like a lot of my courage and, you know, I'm scared of a lot of things. I mean, I'm afraid to fly. I'm afraid of heights. Like, I've got all kinds of things. But I feel like where I get my courage is that re re knowing and thinking about I'm a woman born in the right place at the right time. I don't want to squander that, and I want to make the most of that. You're definitely a family woman. We see that a lot. Your family's featured on your Instagram a lot. How, have your, how has your, your relationship with your mother and grandmother influenced you? Well, I think they influenced me. I, I mean, I love my mom and my grandmother so much. Um, they're, they're, my mom is the most supportive person ever. But they, they influenced me more by what they didn't do. 
um, than what they did. So, you know, my mom's an artist. She's very sweet. She's very soft-spoken. She has um, low confidence, but is a lovely and probably the sweetest person I've ever known in my life. Um, and, and she was a wonderful mother. So I have four children under the age of eight. I have an eight-year-old boy, twin boys that are three, and a two-year-old daughter. So this is vacation for me. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I woke up in my hotel room and I'm like, wow, <laughs> cool. <laughs> We're happy to have you here. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned that you have so many fears, including the fear of heights, but you're known as a leader who does not shy away from her fears. So yes, you are terrified of heights, but you've climbed on top of a hot air balloon, and to be clear, this is on top, not in the basket, to drink tea with Sir Richard Branson. What fuels your drive to face your fears head on as a leader? Uh, honestly, the opportunity to be a woman. Like, I feel like when, you, when you're doing something in life or you're living your life for something beyond just yourself, you'll get courage you didn't know you had. And so I really feel like when I do things, I'm like, I'm doing this for women. I'm doing this for women, you know? And it just helps me. Um, but that was a particularly in, insane moment in my life. I did a reality show with Sir Richard Branson many, many years ago, and it was his take on The Apprentice. And instead of the business challenges all taking place in one city like New York, they took place around the world. And instead of, and this was the fine print I didn't totally read, instead of if you got you lost your business challenge. Instead of getting in the boardroom and him firing you, you had to do a world record-breaking, death-defying stunt with Richard. <laughs> Which I should have known because there was a 27-page contract that came over from Fox that I was supposed to sign, and I emailed it to my dad, who I mentioned is a litigator. And the contract basically was like, we can submerge you underwater, we can put you in political unrest, we can light you on fire. I mean, it was crazy. And I emailed it to my dad and I said, Dad, can you help me kind of tweak this and give me some ad advice? And he, all he wrote back was, no sane person would sign this, love dad. <laughs> so I signed it. <laughs> And I spent two months with Richard Branson, and um, I just trusted my intuition that he, he wasn't going to portray me in a way, you know, on, with Fox. Because literally, my lawyer was on his hands and knees like, don't do this, you're four years into Spanx, why would you ever put, you know. But um, well, the first day of filming, I, uh, at three in the morning, they woke us all up. And they said, you know, we're going to go out into the field by Richard Branson's home in, in Oxford, England. And they handed me a helmet, and I was like... Why do I need a helmet? I'm an entrepreneur. And they're like, here's your helmet. And I got in a hot air balloon, and two hot air balloons went up into the air over the English countryside first thing in the morning. And it was um, at about 9,000, 10,000 feet. And there was a balance beam connecting the two hot air balloons, and you were asked to walk across the balance beam. And I was one of only two people who couldn't do it. <laughs> Where did people come from? And so, anyway, I was like, I can't, you know. And then when they disconnected the two hot air balloons, and Richard turned to me, and he, he said, so Sarah, you know, because you and Tim couldn't get across the balance beam, now you have to do something twice as hard. And I had to climb on a dangling rope ladder uh, the whole circumference of the hot air balloon at 10,000 feet in the air going across the English countryside and have meet him on top of the balloon for tea. 
So sounds fun. It took me 48 <laughs> minutes to climb the balloon. It was insanely hard, and um, yeah. So so my friend, I don't. So my friend Leslie gave this to me last night over dinner, and it's so cool. It's a hot air balloon with someone dangling off of it. <laughs> She's like, I saw that and thought of you. I'm like, thank you very much. And so it will remind me of the the courage it took me or the insanity to t that, to do that. <laughs> Since that show, um, Richard Branson has become sort of a mentor to you. What does that relationship and that mentorship mean to you? And what does mentorship mean to you more generally as well? Well, um, he actually, he's a friend. He's mm -hmm. a great friend. And, um, you know, what I like about Richard is he has an incredible bias for action. He is um, someone who just goes and you just marvel at it. He requires very little sleep. He's always got a notebook with him and he's always writing ideas in it. He's a great delegator. He doesn't ask anybody to do anything he won't do himself. And he's funny. I mean, he want to talk about a prankster. He's funny like he likes to prank people. So you just have to always be prepared when you're around him that something's going to jump out. Always or have something's your helmet. Gonna, yeah, always have your <laughs> helmet, exactly. <laughs> um, so speaking of humor, as you know, here at the GSB, we have a class about humor in business. Mm -hmm. where Which Spanx I love. Is, I think where that Spanx is, is so a case great. Study. <laughs> I do. I think it's so important. Like, why do, yeah, it's really important. Humor and business. Um, so tell me, why is that important? I know that as part of the Spanx training boot camp, one of the l mandatory learning modules is comedy that yep. every employee has to go through. So why is that important? Yeah. Well, I just found out in the green room that I'm one of only two CEOs that you guys are aware of that's um, also done stand-up comedy. And um, the other one is who started Twitter, right? Yes. Yeah, so... Um, I guess that would make me the only female CEO it that's would. ever done stand-up comedy. Well, I, um, the, part of also wanting to stay very connected to the feminine principles and the feminine style of leadership starting Spanx, I also felt like I wanted, I didn't understand why, why everybody was so serious. So I thought, you know what, I don't subscribe to the fact that you have to act serious to be taken seriously. And I like to laugh at myself. I, you know, I looked when I worked in corporate America for a long time, and everybody was super uptight and super serious, and there was no humor and there was no levity. And then everybody at like five o'clock became ragingly hilarious. I was like, what, <laughs> what's going on? Like, you know. And so um, the alcohol probably helped at five, you know. But 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 anyway, I, I wanted to um, to use humor, and I love to do that in the workplace. And yes, we have a, a boot camp at Spanx, a training boot camp. When you come on board. And one of the modules is doing stand-up comedy. And I've used the comedic uh, stuff that I did in my marketing. I mean, I wrote, don't worry, we've got your butt covered right on my package when I first started in 2000, which was not very common to do, especially taking it to the Neiman Marcus to sell it. I named my company Spanx, which was, you know, made people laugh. And believe it or not, it was very shocking at the time that I named the company Spanx. I actually had people hang up on me often. <laughs> I would call them and say, hi, I'm Sarah from Spanx, and then they'd hang up. And I'd call back and I'd go, I'm serious, I'm a real company, and my company's called Spanx. And they go, oh, I thought you were prank calling me. Um, so, um, and then, you know, naming my products, I broke into the world's most boring category. I mean, can we talk about shapewear? Who wants to talk about shapewear and undergarments? But it was, I named it Power Panties. You know, I started naming all my products, and it made people laugh, and it gave so much energy, and then all of a sudden you had 
Gwyneth Paltrow and Julia Roberts flashing their Spanx on red carpets and saying, I'm wearing Spanx, like all these celebrities. And I think it's because I chose to do humor and people wanted to participate in that. There was energy around that. Um, so, so I use it in, in every aspect of, of the marketing. Um, I use humor to turn around a situation when I'm bombing it. It might give me a second chance. When I cold called to sell fax machines door to door for seven years, I learned very quickly that if I could make somebody laugh or smile, I'd get another 30 seconds before they'd slam the door in my face. Um, there's just, it helps you move through pain. It's, it's, it's a wonderful tool. What impact have you seen humor have on your Spanx employees? Well, they're not as afraid to fail, which is a really critical lesson. And I think companies, if you can create a culture where they're not terrified to fail or make a mistake, then you're going you're gonna to be a highly uh, productive and more innovative culture. So having people feel free to laugh at themselves and watching me as their leader laugh at myself. I have oops meetings at Spanx where um, we get up and I tell them what I messed up at or a mistake that I made and I usually tell a funny story about it and I encourage everybody else in the company to stand up and say that and then share and make it a funny story. And so I think that that helps. Do you have any stand-up comedian role models? Um, I, I don't, you know, I, I like Tina Fey a lot. I think she's fabulous and super funny. And I didn't grow up watching co comedy or stand-up comedians. I told you I had a crush on Gene Wilder. <laughs> I had a crush on Gene Wilder when I was little, and I tried to join the Gene Wilder fan club, and there wasn't one. All my friends were like, had crushes on Andy Gibb and all these other fan clubs. And I, I looked up the and my mom tried to find the Gene Wilder fan club, and... Apparently, I was the only one trying to join that, but I think he's so fabulous and funny and, um, and very sexy. And I, my husband actually looks a lot like Gene Wilder. He's got, like, crazy curly hair going in every direction. What lessons did you take away from your time as a stand-up comedian? Uh, what lessons did I take? I mean, well... One thing that I learned that was random, this isn't really a takeaway, but like the green room, I was like, why is it called the green room? It's not green. <laughs> the green room is never green. And then after about six months of doing stand-up comedy, everyone sitting in the room was either throwing up or about to throw up. And I'm like, oh. that's why it's called the green room. Like we're all just sitting there green. Oh, um, no. But <laughs> um, I, I mean, I learned, because I wrote all my own comedy, so I had notebooks and notebooks full of comedy, so I learned the importance of one word. I learned the importance of a comma. I learned the importance of timing. I mean, you could tell a joke, and the next night tell a joke and change one word in it, and it's like a completely different reaction. It's flat. So there's so much importance in, in the delivery and in how you write comedy. Um, I, uh, let's see, I mean... I learned so much. I learned that I needed to go invent something because I actually wasn't that funny <laughs> to create a full-time career out of it. <laughs> but as an entrepreneur, I've seen you kind of pull threads of comedy, as you mentioned. Um, you've said that you try to go out of your way to embarrass yourself on a regular basis. Why is that? Um, well, I'm, I'm curious about the things that hold power over us. And one of the big fears is fear of embarrassment. We all have that. We have fear of failure. So I'm always working on these things that um, I feel like might hold me back. And so if I embarrass myself, then it loses its power over me. And especially if embarrassing myself at times becomes the goal, then it feels, it feels like, I don't know, it's like I'm playing, my, I'm like playing my own head games with myself on that. But, 
Like one example of embarrassing myself is, you know, I joined Instagram and I joined, I feel like I might be the last one on the planet to have joined. It was about a year ago. And um, my team was like, join Instagram, you gotta do it. You gotta put yourself out there. And I was nervous and I wasn't sure. I was like, I don't know. And the day that I joined, I happened to be flying to New York on business. And I was at the Atlanta airport. And so I was like, I'm gonna go around the airport and personally ask people to follow me. And it was so embarrassing, and I was mortified, and I was embarrassing myself, and I, I posted the whole video. It's like my first post on Instagram is me, because I'm like, how does this work? How do you get followers? So I was around, you know, Jackson Hartfield Airport, and I even, like, stood up in the video. I'm filming myself, and I, I make an announcement at my gate. I'm like, excuse me, I'm Sarah Blakely, and I just joined Instagram today. Will you follow me? And literally, I go like this, not one person looks up. They're like... <laughs> I was like, thank you, thank you. <laughs> I was gonna ask if it worked, but uh, <laughs> no, I need more followers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've given us many examples of how you've been able to push yourself to face your fears. What fears have you not figured out how to face yet? I mean, I can't really think of one. I work hard at them. Mm. I mean, sometimes my fear of heights and flying is winning and sometimes I'm winning it edit. You know, I have fear of public speaking. Sometimes I'm winning, sometimes I'm not at that. You know, there's just a lot of different things, but um, there's nothing that I, I feel like I'm not trying and working at. So. so, Sarah, you talked about your Instagram account where you share literally unfiltered moments as a mom, as a wife, as a friend, and as a leader. What keeps you so unbelievably grounded amid all your resounding success? I, I feel like success just makes you more of who you already were. I feel like money and success just does that. So it's like it holds a magnifying glass up to who you are. People, you know, people always ask me that, and I'm like, I don't know who else to be. I mean, I am who I am. So the money, the success. And um, so I like to say if you were a jerk before you got really successful and a lot of money, you, you, you become a bigger jerk, usually. And if you were insecure, you'll become more insecure. If you were nice, you'll become nicer. If you were generous, you'll become more generous. It's literally just a magnifying glass. But, yeah, I am, um, I don't know how, you know, people ask me, I don't know any other way to be going through it, figuring it out along the way. Awesome. Well, I know there's a couple of people in the audience who have questions for you. So I'm going to hand it over okay. for, for a minute. Great. Um, so if you, have, if you have a question, please raise your hand, and we'll get a mic to you. Um. Uh, hi. Uh, hi. Thank you so much for being here. My name's Beth, and I'm hi, in my Beth. second year and about to have to leave this place. Uh, the question that I've been wondering about and that you've, you've spoken about a little bit is, I mean, your Instagram is just awesome. Like, there, there are not other CEOs who I want to spend time, like, seeing what they're up to in their daily life. And I'm wondering, you know, you. How, what you think other people who are running companies and, and, and businesses can learn from how you think about communication through social media. Well, you know, I, I, I haven't thought that much about what other people are and aren't doing. I, I love the idea of um, leaders and CEOs showing vulnerabilities and um, showing the ups and downs. And, you know, 
I just, I just don't really subscribe in the feeling that I need to put on any kind of a facade to be taken seriously as a leader. And so it's like, this is my life. This is who I am. I'm a mom of four. Some days I'm working it out. Some days I'm not. And, um, and I think that, that that's important. I also, I sort of have my own filter for Instagram. I, I don't, it's not planned out. I do it 100% myself and I'm having fun with it. And it, if I wake up one day and it's not fun anymore, then I'll figure out a plan B. But um, so it, everything kind of happens organically and in the moment for, for my Instagram. And um, I, I tend to think before I do it or if it's happening, is this going to inspire someone or make them feel better? You know, I'm kind of interested in making other people feel like they're not in it alone or um, it's, not, it's not the projection of a perfect life. So much for being here. We're so excited to have you. I'm Brittany. I'm an MBA too, as well, about to graduate. Um, and so, as Dean Levin mentioned, you're famous and very much admired for your hustle. Um, I think the story of paying your friends to go buy your product from the shelves of Newman Marcus is one that many of us have heard. And um, I'm just curious, kind of, what hustle means to you, uh, whether you think it can be learned, um, and also whether it's possible to take hustle too far. Hey. That's a good question. That's a few questions. I'm going to try to hit them all. I've got mommy memory. So <laughs> I'm going to start with the first one, which was what do I think of hustle? I, I feel like hustle is um, the willingness to work really, really hard. And then also your willingness to get the job done, like um, kind of navigating and doing what it takes. And, um, and so... I, yeah, I've, there's so much about my journey where I was like, I am not going to let the outcome or my success be contingent on other people as much as I can control it, help it, navigate it, I'm going to. So, um, so yeah, in the beginning, especially still now, I mean, obviously I'm hustling. I'm like at the, at this, where I am now and I'm running around the airport asking people to follow me on Instagram, you know? Uh, I, do, I just feel like it's innate in me also to a degree. Um, but the, uh, in the beginning, ex like there's a few examples that come to mind. You mentioned that I paid my, I called my friends and asked them to go buy Spanx and I wrote everybody checks and sent them a check um, because I needed to drive momentum. And I had no money to advertise, so I'm like, this product's gonna sit on the shelf. So I needed to get people to go in and buy it. I also, when I went into the stores, I realized very quickly that my product was in the sleepiest part of the department store. It was back in the corner and nobody was going there. So then I immediately um, uh, went to Target and I bought um, envelope dividing, dividers that you put on your home desk and I ran around Neiman Marcus and put them at every register and I put Spanx in them and then I walked away. <laughs> and <laughs> Neiman's has like impeccable visual rules and regulations. And, um, and I did that because I had to get my product out of the department. And because I did that, women in shoes started buying Spanx and women in contemporary. And, and um, those decisions made such a big difference. And by the time somebody figured out that nobody else had approved it, because you know, everybody thought somebody else approved it. Um, it was so successful that the head of Neiman's was like, whatever this girl's doing, let her keep doing it. I mean, I have so many stories like that of, of just, what do I need to do? Yeah. 
I am a second year biophysics PhD student. Um, my question is, what advice did you receive about getting Spanx off the ground in the first few years, good or bad? And what approach did you take to taking this mentorship or advice into consideration? Um, and how did you navigate meshing that advice with what you wanted to do based off of your intuition and plan for your company? Okay, so what advice did I get in the beginning? We have compound Spanx? questions here yeah, at Stanford. Yeah, that's okay. Um, what advice was I given in the beginning of Spanx? Um, I mean, I, I, uh, I remember somebody saying to me as I was delegating and growing and, and getting bigger that they said, Sarah, if it's 80% as good as you could do it yourself, let it go and be very happy. And that was so freeing for me because I think I was trying, I was always critiquing in my mind, like, I could, you know, that wasn't 100% exactly the way. And I was just like, so that became a really important lesson for me in, in growing the business um, and letting go more. Um, no, I, I, it's so funny. I, I didn't have, I don't have a mentor and I didn't have, I never took a business class and, um, Wayne Dyer, the, the gentleman I mentioned, he's no longer living. He died almost two years ago, I think. The inspirational and motivational speaker was someone that I really um, kind of taught me without ever knowing him. Um, but, and then, I'm sorry, you had like two, two or three more questions in there. Um, did I answer them? Or? Okay, cool. We'll take maybe one last question from the audience before. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm an MBA one, so I'm not graduating for a little bit. Uh, Hi, Mark. Hey, a uh, quick question. You talked a lot about intuition versus data and decision making and also failing. I'm curious if there's a situation where the numbers would have led you one way, your intuition led you another, and it was a failure in kind of what you learned from it. If I, an example of intuition not working or Just, working? I guess an ex example where your intuition maybe led was a mistake. I cannot give one example. I can't. I can give examples on the other end of not listening to my intuition and it being a mistake. But there's been so much along the way where I, um, and it requires you being quiet and, and being receptive and, and, and listening to whatever the knowing is inside of you. It, um, it requires that. I'd love to take the final question, if that's okay, Sarah. Sure. You've said, the harder you work, the more the universe will believe how serious you are about your goals and dreams and will then show up to help. Mm -hmm. How much of your success do you attribute to your hard work versus luck handed over by the universe? Uh, I think they're so related. I really feel like they're one and the same. And, you know, I mentioned when I first started Spanx, I was selling fax machines door to door. I had a particularly bad day. I literally did get escorted out of buildings almost all day, every day, and people ripped up my business card in my face often. And one day, I just pulled off the side of the road, and I was like, this is not my life. I'm in the wrong movie. Call the director. <laughs> call the producer. Like, cut. This is not happening. And I went home to my apartment, and I wrote my strengths. 
I was like, what am I good at? And pretty much the only thing in the good column was sales. And so I started asking myself, well, what is, what is it about sales that I'm good at? And I realized I like giving somebody something or selling them something that could help them or change their life or make them feel good. So I actually wrote in my journal that night, I'm going to invent a product that I can sell to millions of people that will make them feel good. And then I specifically asked the universe for the idea. And I said out loud in my apartment, universe, give me the idea. And two years later, I cut the feet out of my pantyhose to go to a party. I couldn't figure out what to wear under white pants. And I did it only one time because I was so open and receptive to what the universe was going to provide for me. And it took two years, and I was always looking, but um, it showed up, and I was going to pursue it. I wasn't sure if that was the idea or not. So I've been in partnership with the universe. I feel like the universe, you know, my CFO, who's, you know, a little bit more analytical-minded than I am, um, she, now, she now says the universe is the best employee on the payroll because they're free. It's free. So she's now a believer. And you know what's so funny is about, uh, like, I, when I first started Spanx 2, I joined a group, uh, and they put me in a forum of men. And there were only men in this uh, entrepreneurial, it's like a YPO across the country, and they put me in my chapter in Atlanta. And I got put in with 10 guys. I'm the only girl. I have met with these 10 guys every single month for 17 years now. They're like my brothers. But they will tell you, when, when I first started, they were all taking bets in the group of how long I'd be in business. And, you know, I would always say things like, they'd go around the room and talk about things, and I would say, well, I've, I've asked the universe to do this, and I've <laughs> taken care of this, and I have visualized that I'm going to be on Oprah, and I have, you know, and they're like... And so, and then... <laughs> And then, like, my results kept going up and up and up. And then eventually, after a couple of years, one by one, and I'm not kidding, every single one of them pulled me aside secretly and was like, so how do you talk to the universe? <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business based on the Dean Speaker Series. This interview was conducted by Sarah Albana of the MBA class of 2018. Our theme music was composed by Lily Sloan. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Stanford GSB. You can find more episodes of our show wherever you get your podcasts.